You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from Egypt about the ongoing crackdown on all kinds of dissent. And we'll ask what governments in Europe and elsewhere can do to influence President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. But we begin with Greece and signs that the left-wing government in Athens is close to an agreement with its partners in the Eurozone after weeks of hard public bargaining. The deal will allow Greece to draw down funding from its international lenders and help to ensure that its banks stay open. But there are four months of even tougher negotiations ahead over Greece's debt burden. For the latest on the talks, I'm joined from Athens by our correspondent Damien Makanola and from Brussels by our European correspondent Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, can you describe to us the latest state of play? Do we have a deal? Um, it looks like we, we do. Uh, this afternoon, the Eurogroup are holding a conference call on the Greek proposals that were submitted uh, Monday evening by the Greek government uh, to the Eurogroup and the European Commission. Um, and all signs are that the Eurogroup is going to back this list of proposals. Um, now, on Friday night, this was the third of the of the many uh, of the Euro, emergency Eurogroups to try and deal with the with the escalation standoff. Uh, the Eurogroup agreed to extend the loans, but only on condition that uh, reforms were put forward by Athens. And over the weekend, we've seen kind of background talks on this. And now uh, the uh, the Syriza government has sent in this six-page uh, list of reforms. And yes, looks like the Eurogroup is going to back those for the moment anyway. And does this represent a total climb down by Greece? Well, I mean, the documents now is, is beginning to emerge, um, the, this final six-page document. And I suppose, I mean, it, it, it's all in a matter of interpretation. And, and with everything, with the, since the beginning of the standoff, a lot is to do with language and, and how you spin this, in a sense. But um, there's quite a bit of detail, probably more detail than a lot of people would have thought. So we have uh, got these thematic uh, promises to look at uh, reform of the tax system, uh, to look at a reform of the health system, to look at things like pensions, um, and tackling corruption. But there are a few more details as well um, from the Greek government uh, saying, for example, um, that they're going to uh, look at uh, collective bargaining and wages. But on the minimum wages, for example, they say that they will only look at uh, increasing the minimum wage in consultation with its social partners and in the EU and the international institutions. So that could be seen as a kind of a, of a climb down by Sritza in one sense. Um, but I suppose it's an example of a kind of compromise. One thing that we are lacking, though, in this proposal are figures. You know, how much money um, Greece are, is expecting to save with all these measures. So they're the kind of details that we're going to see being worked out in the next, say, two months in particular. And over the next two months, what's actually going to happen? Well, negotiations are going to continue working at, at the, on this document uh, as a kind of a roadmap. There, the, basically, the, the, the institutions formerly known as the Troika, as they're now being called, are going to continue working with the, uh, with the Greek authorities on these specific measures and trying to calculate how much savings you know, can be made. And I think, actually, uh, Brendan Howland, the Irish Minister for Public Expenditure, was in Brussels this morning, and he reiterated comments by Michael Noonan last week, said really the Greek government are going to be looking to do something like what Ireland did. But we, we were the same in that we had a Fine Gael Labour government that came in in the middle of a bailout and, and they managed to renegotiate and change some of the terms of their bailout programme. But really the key thing was presenting new austerity measures that were of equal fiscal value to the measures that were originally proposed by the Troika. 
um, and, and kind of came to the same result. So we'll be seeing, we'll be looking to see if Greece can manage to do the same thing. Yes, not 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 adhere to some of the terms of the bailout, and instead bring forward their own proposals. And as long as they, you know, the, the, the authorities think they match up and they add up, well, then the the lenders will, will probably give the green light for, for Greece to continue with these new reforms. The Greek government had a problem with some of the vocabulary that's been used around all this, like for example the the use of the term the troika, the use of the word program or memorandum. Are those terms all gone now? Yeah, it looks like the word troika is not going to be seen again in these discussions. It's it's the word institutions. We've also got the other issue of the of the of the bailout program and whether it is, is a bridge program. And now we've got this term loan extension that has, has slipped through. Um, so yeah, the, the language is very important here, and the semantics are very important in terms of how Syriza is going to sell this to its its public, and then how how the German government, for example, and other hardline creditor countries are going to sell it to their public as well. You know how how you spin this is going to be very important in terms of getting the political buy-in from both sides over the next few months. Uh, Damien Makanole in Athens, how will the Greek government reconcile the letter that they have sent to the Eurozone finance ministers today with their election promises, with their Thessaloniki platform of uh, economic policies, and indeed with some of the uh, promises that they made as soon as they took office? Well, that, of course, remains to be seen. The, 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 the Greeks have only, are, are only today reading this document, the six-page document that, uh, that uh, Suzanne outlined uh, previously. Um, and they will, the process now of, of comparing uh, that document with what the government and what the party, what Syriza had offered uh, before and after the elections, that, that will now uh, begin in earnest. But I think there's something in this document for everybody. That seems to be the... That seems to be the, the view that is emerging now in, in, in Greece today suggest that there is there is something in there for for everybody something that will uh, appeal to the the people who voted for Syriza in the election uh, the, the, the 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 fourth uh, platform of this of this letter refers to the humanitarian crisis so that is something that this this is one of the red line issues that Syriza has spoken about a lot of those red red lines seem to be more flexible than others but one one bottom line was that there must be support given to the 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 the, the the biggest victims of, of the crisis in Greece, you know, the 30, 35 percent of the population who are living uh, on or below the poverty line. So that's uh, that's in there. Um, they, there. There are other things in there that will appeal to Syriza's uh, voters. There's, there, there are things in there that uh, Syriza has always called for. Um, for example, uh, requiring private TV stations to pay for licenses that they've been to pay for the frequencies that they've been using for the last 25 years. Um, uh, for free. You know, there is a law there requiring private uh, stations and radio stations to pay for those frequencies, but that money has never been collected. So if, if Syria can be seen to, to, to crack down on, on sectors of the society, our business sectors that have been uh, seen not to have burdened any, uh, any of the responsibilities or any of the burden that uh, others have, have, have borne in the last five years, that could be something that, um, that will help them. Uh, sell this deal. There are more tricky issues in there. The, the issue of privatisation, for example, Syriza had said, or some Syriza representatives had said that they would reverse uh, the, the country's uh, privatisation programme. The document that was sent today talks about accepting privatisation deals that have already gone through, accepting, uh, allowing uh, projects that have been tendered, allowing them to, 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 to be continued. But they'll say that from now on, all new 
uh, are all uh, planned privatisation uh, projects will be looked at on a case-by-case basis. Um, they will look at uh, various, various uh, options. So instead of selling things off completely, they might look at long-term leases and, and partnerships and things like that. So um, uh, it, it really all depends on, on how effective, I think, Syriza is in, in, in implementing um, um, they have always uh, that they have always uh, supported. Uh, Damien, the uh, Greek public seems to have been very supportive of the approach that Syriza has taken in these negotiations. Is that likely to continue, despite the fact that they've so far come home without all that many of their initial demands? Well, this is this is a kind of a paradox of of, of the of uh, of the. Of of the Greek approach since the, since the election uh, one month ago, this government is enjoying popularity levels uh, that, that no Greek government in recent decades has seen. About eighty percent, over eighty percent of the population, are, are have rode in behind uh, the government. It's it's got it's one support from quarters that have, would never have supported Syriza government, uh, a Syriza or left-led government in the past. So this is. Something that they that they are riding a, a huge wave of popularity, and this this could be something that that may be able to help them ride the storm really um, when it comes to its own uh, internal uh, party um, uh, conflicts. So, and there are two things we have to distinguish here. One is the kind of internal opposition uh, that has been voiced within Syriza to what uh, has happened or what happened on Friday in, at the Eurogroup and possibly what will the reaction to the document that was sent today and public opinion. And I think this will, that the strength of public, public opinion will, will, will ensure that the, that the left-wing opposition within Syria will think twice before breaking or, or uh, resigning their seats in government, for example. So I think it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, the, 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 the public popularity that the, that the government enjoys is, is, is a strength and, and may help us um, uh, get through the criticisms that will be inevitably will be levelled against this. Can we speak uh, just about some of that internal opposition? There, uh, Syriza is, of course, a coalition of uh, a number of left-wing groups, and within it there's, uh, there's a, uh, an organised hard-left faction which is known as the Left Platform. Have they already been expressing their opposition to the kinds of compromises that we're seeing coming out of Brussels? Well, there was a cabinet meeting today, and that that uh, has just broken up in the last uh, in the last half hour or so. Um, details have, have yet to emerge of, of what was said and, and, and what was uh, and what was exchanged within the meeting. But we do know that uh, Panayotislav Zanis, who is the minister for 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 industrial reconstruction uh, or productive reconstruction, I think is his title. He's the the figurehead of the left opposition within Syria. That platform controls about 30% of the membership. I'm not too sure of how many MPs uh, it has, but uh, he apparently expressed his uh, his his objection to um, to much of what was in uh, today's document. But Lafazanis hasn't been very vocal um, over the last weekend. When other people have have, have emerged within series to criticise the document, uh, to criticise the the deal that was struck at uh, on Friday the, at the Eurogroup, among them was Manolis Glezos, who's a, a, an iconic um, uh, member of the party. He's an MEP. He's 92 years of age, and 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 he came out and said that the the, the 
renaming of the Troika into the institutions, for example, was was like uh, was akin to renaming uh, meat as fish. So he was very outspoken uh, over the weekend. He apologised to the Greek people for his um, for going along with this uh, with, with this um, charade, uh, as, as he called it. Uh, other people have also criticised it. Nikis Theodorakis, uh, he's not a member of Syriza, he's not an MP, but he's the, the, the famous composer, Nikis Theodorakis, also criticised the government. But after meeting, after meeting with Alexis Tsipras, with Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras today, uh, he gave uh, the Prime Minister his full backing. So some of the more vocal critics, uh, once they, it seems that their opposition to the government can be, can be calmed after uh, getting reassurances from the Prime Minister. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, it seems that uh, every other member state of the Eurogroup essentially ganged up against Greece and uh, told them that regardless of what you were elected to do, we're not allowing it to happen. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning of, uh, you know, a month ago after the the election, there seemed to be quite a bit of support from countries such as France and Italy with with left-wing governments. But ironically, I think these countries actually hardened their stance as the weeks went on. Um, we saw Italy come out quite strongly um, against uh, Syriza, um, and France kind of rolled back as well on its on commitments. And maybe it's because they were these governments are looking at their own uh, domestic political uh, situation and uh, the threat of of the more left wing elements within their own parties on that. I mean, I think generally over over the last few weeks in the series of both the summit and the Eurogroup, um, officials are saying here that generally the, the message was in, in these private meetings when Alexis Tsipras and Mr. Varoufakis got up and, and, and said their said their uh, their piece at these meetings. Other countries were saying, well, we have austerity too. We have got un- high unemployment. We've got disgruntled public, and we're, we're, we're struggling with low growth and high unemployment too. It's not just you guys. And this seems to have been the narrative from the other European countries, that really the difficulty in selling this to their own countries was just going to be, be too, too high. Um, in, in saying that, you do have this kind of hardcore of certain countries, um, the, the usual suspects of the word, Germany, uh, Holland and uh, Finland, and then countries that have their own um, elections coming up. So Finland, again, uh, very imminent election, and Spain, uh, it has been one of the most vocal opponents um, of any kind of debt relief for, for Greece, uh, mainly because of the rise of, of uh, their own uh, left-wing party, Podemos in Spain. The Spanish government are very sensitive about that. Um, and then we also got, I mean, I was speaking to people here in Brussels who said, um, we've, you know, there's kind of a sense that Mr. Varoufakis came in and to these meetings and a lot of the Eurozone finance minister felt, felt slightly patronised. Um, all over Twitter there were comments about, you know, the Marxists wearing the Burberry scarf this kind of champagne socialist lecturing them on, on Marxist economic ideology, uh, where they were kind of saying, well, look, we're, we're politicians here, and it takes time to push through measures, and, you know, there's a sense that maybe this new Greek government doesn't have the experience that, that after all these years on finance ministers are first and foremost politicians, and they understand the difficulties in getting political and financial reforms through. So I think there was a slight bit of frustration with Mr. Varoufakis, at the same time as... I think everyone can, can understand that after five years of the bailout, it's, it's a shocking indictment of, of the Troika policies and of, of the EU's economic policy that Greece is in this situation. Uh, so ultimately, um, it, 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 whatever way this played out over the next few months, it's reflecting very badly on Brussels and Berlin and, and the whole response to the Eurozone crisis since, you know, since the onset six years ago. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels and Damien Makanola in Athens, thank you. 
You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Egypt's President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has signed a decree giving the authorities more sweeping powers to ban groups for a range of offences from harming national unity to disrupting public order. The move comes a day after one of Egypt's most prominent democracy activists, Allah Abdel Fattah, was jailed for five years for violating limits on demonstrations. And it's the latest turn of the screw by a government that has killed more than 1,500 protesters and jailed tens of thousands, including the Irish student Ibrahim Halawa, since it took power in a coup in 2013. The crackdown that began with action against the Muslim Brotherhood following the overthrow of President Mohamed Morsi has broadened to include democracy activists, journalists and members of minorities including gay and transgendered people. Meanwhile, President Sisi has become a key ally of Western leaders in confronting the so-called Islamic State or ISIS and has also formed close ties with Russian President Vladimir Putin. To discuss this, I'm joined from Cairo by human rights activist and blogger Scott Long and from London by Sharif Nashashibi, a journalist and commentator on Arab affairs. Scott Long, can I ask you something about the atmosphere for people who are dissenters in uh, Egypt today? I would say there's a general crackdown on dissent. I would say that it's been going on ever since the coup happened in July 2013. Um, very, very soon after the coup, the, the real face of this regime revealed itself. It's a military regime. It has brought back the, the same people who were behind the old Mubarak regime, the same people who profited from it, the same people who were close to it. And I think, I think one ruling sentiment of the regime is that the Mubarak regime failed because it was too weak, because they didn't crack down enough on human rights activists, on dissidents, on the Muslim Brotherhood, on bloggers, on free expression. And so they're determined to, to make up for that, to show that they're strong, to suppress any kind of dissent where it happens. So, so peaceful protest, um, um, journalistic dissidents, um, 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 any, any kind of, of active dissent from the regime is under threat. And the atmosphere here in Cairo is extremely, I would say, frightening and frightened. After the, uh, the coup and during the time of the overthrow of President Morsi, many of the democracy activists who had been involved in the uh, overthrow of Mubarak in 2011 were initially uh, quite sympathetic, it seemed, to uh, Sisi and certainly to the overthrow of Morsi. Have they changed their tune or are they still uh, siding with, uh, with President Sisi? A lot have. I mean, uh, what what you saw under Morsi was that, uh, you know, the, the, the Morsi government was essentially trying to recreate some of the aspects of Mubarak's regime, but to shift the, the kind of pipeline of largesse, to shift um, who was benefiting from the regime's power to its own supporters. And on that basis, a lot of pro-democracy activists supported its overthrow. They felt that the, the, that the Morsi government was incompetent, and they felt that it was simply replicating some of the features of, of Mubarak's rule. But a lot of those people have been surprised and shocked by the degree to which CC has really resurrected the worst aspects of, of the Mubarak regime and worsened them. You know, I think if you talk to many pro-democracy activists in Egypt now, they would say they never thought things could get worse than they were on, in the old days of Hosni Mubarak, but they actually are substantially worse for basic freedoms. 
Can you tell me something about Allah Abdel Fattah? He, uh, he's a, a blogger and a democracy activist, and he fell foul both of Mubarak and of Morsi, and then subsequently of Sisi. One essential feature, apparently, for any Egyptian government is that it has to throw Allah Abdel Fattah in jail. It seems to be part of any government's legitimacy. Allah comes from a family of dissidents and human rights activists. His father, um, Ahmed Saif al-Islam, was, I have to say, one of, one of the great human rights activists I've ever known in my life. Um, both his sisters and his mother are, are leftist pro-democracy activists. Allah was jailed under Mubarak. He was prosecuted under Morsi. And just yesterday, he was, he was sentenced to five years in jail, basically for participating in peaceful protest. Now, just today, two top officials from the Mubarak era, his former prime minister and his former interior minister, um, were both acquitted um, after having been charged with basically embezzlement, with, with squandering public funds. And I think the contrast here is very conspicuous. The contrast is that people who spoke up against Mubarak go to jail, whereas figures who were absolutely at the center of abuses under Mubarak are being sent free, including, of course, the, uh, the former dictator himself. And that's part of the, the, the paradox that is, is really appalling and frightening people here in Cairo. Among those who have become frightened uh, have been the gay, uh, lesbian and transgendered uh, community. And there have been a series of incidents which uh, have involved a crackdown on gays and uh, transgendered people in particular. Can you tell me something about what's been going on there? last um, roughly year and a half, we know of at least 150 people who have been arrested essentially for being gay, and many of them are serving long prison terms of up to 12 years. Uh, I think one of the things that's happening here is that since the coup, since Sisi took power, there's been a very concerted effort to bring back the police. In the wake of the 2011 revolution, the, the police largely disappeared from a lot of places in ordinary life. Because for a lot of people, they were the most hated symbol of the regime and what it had done and its capacity to torture. And the police have been using this crackdown on unpopular people, people whom very few people in Egypt will actively defend, as a way of saying, we're back, we're defending the basic values of the Egyptian people, and, and you need us. Um, but for LGBT people, it's been absolutely terrifying. They feel they're not safe on the streets, they're not safe in gathering places like cafes, they're not safe at home, and it's also, I think, a symbol of how the regime is willing to persecute people for completely harmless activities they engage in in private life, to engage in surveillance of people's personal and intimate lives, and to crack down on any minority if it thinks that it will further its own opportunistic political ends. And does it help their political ends? I, I, I think it does to some extent. I mean, what I have sensed in the last few months is an increasing disillusionment with CC um, because of his, his inability to follow through on some of the basic promises with which he took power, which included revitalizing the Egyptian economy. And basically, the economy is still um, I'm stuck in a sand dune. Um, so, so I do think that there's been a kind of drift of popularity away from him. There is some evidence of cracks within the, the ruling structures. There have been a lot of, of, of leaks in, in recent months and weeks of tape recordings, allegedly of figures at the very center of the regime, and these suggest that some figures in the security establishment are really not happy with the regime and are, are trying to undermine it. 
but but these kinds of demonizing of of minorities, demonizing of dissidents, demonizing of difference, they do work for the regime. They 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 send a message that the people who are against the regime are not really true Egyptians, and the people who consider themselves Egyptians should rally around Sisi. And the exploitation of nationalism and xenophobia, and a kind of I would almost say proto-fascist spirit of 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 of, of fake social solidarity has been a powerful force for the regime's own 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 popularity. Sharif uh, Nashashibi, can I ask you something about the role of the judiciary in what's happening in Egypt today? The judiciary uh, were uh, among those who found themselves uh, in a, a position of tension with the previous president, President Morsi. Uh, has their position under the new regime changed radically? Yes, well, under Morsi, the judiciary had been complaining that it uh, that it lacked the necessary independence. Um, but as we've seen under Sisi, um, neither does the judiciary have independence, but it doesn't seem to be wanting it. It, it, it is basically just uh, an arm of the state. Um, it's doing the state's bidding, it, and it's handing out death sentences like candy. Uh, it is acquitting um, Mubarak officials, including Mubarak himself, um, and uh, handing out all sorts of you know fantastical uh, sentences with 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 a judicial process that is a sham. I mean, this has been kind of very well documented by human rights groups. So it seems that the, the judiciary just didn't didn't like Morsi. It wasn't about independence because they seem to be very willingly giving up their independence under Sisi. There was some criticism from uh, Western capitals of uh, Sisi initially and indeed of the coup itself, but uh, that has diminished as the months have gone by and it's reduced almost to a whisper now that uh, that the Western powers find themselves in alliance with uh, Sisi in opposition to the Islamic State. And meanwhile, he's also forging this relationship with Putin. Can you tell me something about that, the, that set of relationships? Yeah, I mean, there are a few key factors here that have, have um, contributed to shoring up Sisi's position. One is that, I mean, from the beginning, uh, since since the coup, the Western criticism had, was always fairly muted, but it became much more muted after um, America partially and, and in a limited way um, withheld military assistance over the killing of protesters. Egypt's reaction was to say, well, if you're not going to give us arms, we're going to turn to Russia. Russia was more than happy to fill the void. And since then, America has been much more muted about that. So what you have now is is America and Russia vying for weapon sales and influence in, in Egypt. Uh, in the meantime, the Gulf states have provided some at least $12 billion in, in aid to Egypt. So it is providing a, a, an economic safety net. Um, so that, that has helped deflect international criticism of Egypt. And now Sisi is portraying himself as a leading figure in the fight against ISIS. So um, he has now seen less as an abuser of Egyptians, but more of, of a kind of leading figure against uh, religious extremism and violence. Um, so um, he probably feels more able to carry on with his, um, his policies at home. Uh, Scott was just describing some uh, apparent cracks within the administration and perhaps a certain amount of disenchantment uh, among the public with uh, Sisi's failure to get to grips with the economy. How secure do you think uh, Sisi is or how solid is his grip on power? 
I think he feels secure at the moment, um, but I, I think it, time is running out because at the beginning of his rule, he was very much portraying the situation as you're either with the Muslim Brotherhood or you're or you're against them. Um, but what has been happening? The crackdown has widened. It is now not just against Islamists or Morsi supporters, but it's against any form of dissent. So what we have now are, are very many people being targeted who were neither pro Morsi nor pro pro Sisi, um, and they are being targeted. So you're having a a third camp, which is growing in size. Um, he may be counting on the fact that you know supporters of Morsi um, and this third camp are not going to work together, and that might, might be the case at the moment. But as long as the economy is stagnant, which it is, and as long as the insecurity and violence needed continues, this is going to be a major problem for Sisi, who is, after all, a military figure, who, is, who has promised to, um, to alleviate uh, insecurity and violence and to improve the economy. So far, neither of, of these things are happening. And I think eventually we're going to get to a point where a critical mass will be reached among Egyptians who will be disillusioned and say, well, you haven't provided the things you promised. And um, you are rolling back the, the re revolutionary ideas that we fought for. So um, he is living on borrowed time. And if he doesn't deliver, he is going to face, face a backlash just as Morsi did and just as Mubarak did. Uh, Scott Long, if the uh, democracy activists and the Muslim Brotherhood are in jail or dead or in exile, who actually will lead any possible future revolution? Well, one thing you have to look at is the persistence of workers' dissent in Egypt. Um, it's a somewhat neglected fact, but since 2007 until the 2011 revolution, um, Egypt experienced one of the largest waves of, of, of strikes and, and industrial worker activism in its history. And that has continued because workers are getting screwed over by this regime, by the failing economy, and by the repressive actions of, of, of the military government. Um, uh, I think one of the failures of revolutionary activism between 2011 and and the coup and the present has been the failure of, of kind of the intellectual left and human rights activists to try to uh, draw on a constituency among the working class. But one of the things that might happen, and I say might, over the next few months or years, is, is an increasing degree to which the working class in Egypt takes the lead um, and and actually assumes leadership of, of, of a resistance to the Sisi regime. I, I certainly hope that that's something that will happen. And are those working class organizations, trade unions, are they intact? Well, uh, we're not really speaking of organizations here. Um, the, the legal union in Egypt is a state-run union, and it attempts to subordinate working-class activism to the state. Um, the main way that working-class protest has been expressed is through informal organizations, through uh, semi-spontaneous strikes in places, particularly in the Suez Canal Zone, in, in Suez itself, the city, and in the Delta. Um, but, but these activists, the activists behind this, have developed an increasing degree of sophistication and increasing coordination since 2007. And I would actually say that beyond it, its rhetoric about the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamic State, um, um, working class dissent is really the thing that the Sisi regime has always been most afraid of. That was true under Mubarak as well. The thing that most terrified Mubarak was that these very small groups of um, basically middle-class human rights activists would somehow be able to draw on a constituency among um, 
the broader um, dispossessed in Egypt. Um, if that happens, if these groups are able to coalesce, then I think it really could present a long-term threat to the stability of the regime and the grip of the state on society. Sharif, would you share that view that that's where uh, dissent or where organized uh, uh, revolutionary activity is likely to come from? Well, it's it's difficult to say because the, the I mean, for example, the revolution against Mubarak and against Mursi brought together various forces that one wouldn't have considered um, to, to come together. Um, so sometimes these situations create strange bedfellows. And it's difficult to say that because of the extent of the crackdown, uh, it, it's 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 very hard to express dissent. So it's hard to know where um, certain elements of dissent are coming from. And it's difficult to to get organized. So um, this is this is it's very difficult to tell. And uh, usually with these revolutions, when it happens, things happen um, often more spontaneously than people expect. Um, but at the moment, as I said, CC is, is counting on the fact that the uh, various uh, elements in Egyptian society um, are fractured, and this is going to shore up his rule because it will it will dent any significant unified challenge against his, his governance. And what about the Muslim Brotherhood itself? Is that finished now as an organization in uh, in Egypt? It's not finished, but it is it's outlawed, it is underground. I mean, the the, the, the crackdown on it is, is, has been very harsh and very widespread, but it, it, it will not make it disappear. I mean, just as, as crackdowns against it under Mubarak took place, it, the, the organization just went underground. It never disappeared. Um, so I think at the moment, it, you know, it is, uh, uh, it's underground, but it's, it's, I think the, the idea at the moment that, you know, um, talking to the Brotherhood is beyond the pale, I don't think helps, because whatever CC or supporters think, uh, the Brotherhood still has uh, uh, a uh, well-organized uh, uh, entity with supporters. Um, the fact that they're driven on the ground doesn't mean that they're not there. So I, I think refusing to talk um, is you are literally disenfranchising a large segment of the population, and no political situation, no security situation is going to be alleviated by simply saying, right, these Egyptians we're not speaking to because they're beyond the pale. And comparing them to ISIS, just lumping all these different kind of Islamist organizations together, again, doesn't help. It's not accurate and it's not helpful. Um, I think it's a convenient excuse for the government to say, well, you know, it's inappropriate for us to talk to them because they are uh, they espouse similar ideologies to, to people like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, which isn't the case. Scott Long, does international public opinion matter to the government in Egypt? Well, uh, you know, as a human rights activist, I would say that we always felt under the Mubarak era that somebody in the government was actually registering what international um, protest and international opinion said, um, and that there were certain limits beyond which the government wouldn't go. Uh, Sharif is right that this regime has been very good at playing international actors against each other. They triangulate things very effectively between the U.S. on the one hand, the, 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 the threat to the U.S. of Russia on the other, and then um, a core base of support in some Gulf states. So I think they feel um, that they don't have to worry much about what, what other governments are saying. Um, I do think international pressure can have an effect or could have an effect if it were used appropriately. I mean, the fact that the U.S. continues pouring money into um, the Egyptian military is disgraceful and, and 
conveys the impression that, that it doesn't give a damn what Egypt does. Even short of cutting aid, there are ways that the U.S. could at least restrict it to send a message to the Egyptian government. Um, for instance, there's something called cash flow financing, which the U.S. allows for its aid to Egypt, which essentially permits Egypt to buy military arms on credit with the promise of the aid it's going to get in future years. Um, I think at a minimum, some of these sweetheart deals um, with Egypt should be struck down. Um, there should be ways in which the administration in the United States conveys that what's happening in Egypt is simply beyond the pale and unacceptable. Whether there's political will to do that is another question. And what about the role of individual citizens in Europe or the United States? Is there anything that, uh, that individuals can usefully do to help? Yes. I, I, one thing I would point to is that next month... In March, there is a large economic conference that CC is organizing um, in the resort of Sharm el-Sheikh to bring together governments, international lenders, and businesses to try to persuade them to invest in Egypt. Now, I don't necessarily think that businesses should not invest in Egypt, um, but I do think they should look both at the rather unstable security situation and at the, the human rights implications of their investment, and they should try to use what leverage they have to push the Egyptian government um, um, to, to, to at least um, alleviate the crackdowns that are going on right now. And some of these businesses are very concerned about their own reputation. Some of them have human rights records and human rights problems of their own. Um, um, BP in the UK um, is, is one of the organizations, one of the businesses that is prominently featured on, on, on the speaker's roster. Um, we all know some of the marks on their record in the past. I think it's a legitimate question whether they want further marks by an intimate association with the CC government. So I think there is a role for citizens to pressure some of the governments and some of the businesses that are in cahoots and in bed with the CC government to use their leverage to try to raise human rights issues. That's certainly one thing that could be done. Scott Long and Sharif Nashashibi, thank you. And you can read Scott Long's blog at paperbird at paper-bird.net. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. And you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.